Hi, and welcome to this month's bonus podcast episode. And um, today we're just going to have a chat with Macon about an event we did on the 28th of February about xenofeminism. And he's just going to introduce the subject to you. Thanks, Eva. Yeah, so uh, this year's Cobaho Laser, uh, that their theme was uh, manifestos. And I was kind of struggling to put together something literary about manifestos. So in the end, I just thought of the coolest manifesto I'd recently read and <laughs> abandoned the literary part of it, um, which was the uh, Xenofeminist Manifesto or Xenofeminism, a politics for alienation. And so we... Uh, got together with um, some of our friends from uh, Existence Philosophisk Academy and um, Passive Aggressive, a music magazine that had just made the Danish translation for it and invited one of the members of the collective Laborio Cubonics who'd, uh, who'd um, written the manifesto, uh, Diane Bauer, an artist and writer based in London, to come over and, and talk to us. And we had Martin Hoburg Lund, uh, one of the leading speculative realists of Denmark, come and uh, explain some of the origins of this stuff. And we had a jolly old time at Sort of Fierkant, um, all uh, supported by um, Nobro Lokel Ulvel. So now we'll have a listen to the first half of the event, um, starting with Martin Lund on the subject of speculative realism. Uh, as you see, this is uh, strictly scripted, this uh, speech. Uh, and here's my cue. <laughs> and you say hello, plus. I'm Jon, I'm Jon Arangrem. I'm from the uh, Existenzfilosofisk Academy, or the, uh, well, Academy of Existential Philosophy. We're not existentialists, so no. that, uh, I, I want to stress that. Uh, well, I'm... Well, I'm not. Perhaps Tina, the other co-founder, is. She's reading Kierkegaard. If, they, yeah. if she's anything, I don't know. If you read Kierkegaard, she are you reads, anything? She's that as well. So. Yeah. So you might never know. Anyway, I'm also a part of the festival, uh, Copenhagen Reads. Uh, and uh, uh, this year we have the, uh, the theme, Manifesto. Okay, so say a little bit more about what's been going on. Uh, as I said, uh, Arc Books on Willigal, so around the corner and down the road a little bit. Um, we, we were hoping to hold it in the shop, but then we realized that was a stupid, stupid idea. And we're very grateful to uh, Sort of Fearcamp for um, opening their doors and allowing us to use the space for free. So, in the breaks, please um, show how much you appreciate that too. Um, but we also made it a wonderful uh, happenstance collaboration with uh, Passive Aggressive, the music magazine, um, who uh, had been in the process of uh, making a translation of the Xenofemist Manifesto into Danish. At the same time that I applied for funds to host this event, uh, <laughs> which is very strange, uh, Tobias um, uh, Lindemann, you, 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 thank you, thank you, <laughs> um, made the translation, and he would love to be here tonight, but he's in Vancouver, so that's an obstacle. Um, and later in the evening, uh, you'll be able to purchase the wonderful physical copy of it for about the cost of printing. I think you, do you, do you want to say more about what you do? Or? No, we're, this, this, we've actually jumped to skip the step. Okay. So we can, I can say a, a bit more about Please what do. you do. All right. So, uh, Existential Philosophers Academy, or the Academy of Existential Philosophy, we do a lot of uh, public talks where we try to engage in philosophical uh, dialogue or uh, whatever you say, try to talk uh, about some of the subjects that you I'm talking about, for instance, the philosophy department in Copenhagen. 
So, <laughs> so we're talking. Uh, we're. I think that we. Uh, we're talking about the philosophy following from Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and so on, uh, and also from the uh, existentialist and surrealist, and and uh, on to uh, more contemporary philosophy in in that regard. So we're also in the cross field between uh, philosophy and and art. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I I think that this was a wonderful way to engage in uh, a contemporary discussion on philosophy and feminism and uh, existential philosophy uh, and so on. And I also had a chance to read the manifesto, the translation, and give my comments, so I'm very happy to be invited to that as well. Yeah. How's the translation? I think it's good. <laughs> Great. Okay, so a few um, words on XF. Um, I first came across the uh, Xenofeminist Manifesto um, when I saw on Facebook uh, the late Mark Bishop posting, uh, XF is like the Communist Manifesto for the 21st century, really that good. And while this will surely offend an orthodox Marxist, you've got to remember it's because the Communist Manifesto wasn't the Communist Manifesto when it came out. It's like the shock that it applied to your thinking. That was the important thing. And I think when you read XF, you can experience a similar shock and you can not take it all in at once, and then you reread it, and it rewards that enriching experience as it just takes your imagination in, in uh, startling new directions. You know, picking up on these uh, themes that we find in speculative realism and Victorian ontology and accelerationism that are so often uh, criticised for their um, maybe uh, abstract nature in not relating to power struggles or, or not relating to uh, real existing oppression. XF at once introduces those problematics into those fields, and then also problematizes the fact that they need to um, in really compelling and interesting ways. Um, and so, yeah, with this, uh, this combination of, um, of critique and optimism, of rationality and possibility, of intelligence and imagination, and a little whimsy, which you can kind of see on the title page with this resurrecting mummy and a constant gif, it's, it's great. Um, you, yeah, you, you see, like, there's an imagination of the future, and it's trying to pull us towards it, and that is really welcome, especially in times such as these, weather such as this. So, um, so a little note about how the evening is going to proceed from here. We will leave the stage, um, and Martin will come up, uh, for, who is the uh, author of Speculative Realism, a Introduction, but in Danish, um, and he will give a brief, um, well, deep, thorough, <laughs> but succinct um, introduction to some of the, these kind of strange schools of thought from the other Anglophone philosophy, philosophy tradition of you know, SR, uh, especially realism and accelerationism and that will kind of lay the groundwork for um, a talk from Diane who's come all the way over from London where the slightest snow will stop a plane flying so we're really glad that's worked out tonight today um, between them there'll be a break again, appreciation must be so shown to the wonderful people here at Solar Fearcant um, and then finally, there'll be a panel uh, where they'll be joined by um, uh, researcher Rebecca Lund, um, who's a uh, researcher in um, feminist uh, knowledge production and epistemic justice at a university in Finland. Injustice. 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 You're researching the injustices. <laughs> Surprising. Well. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. What's the wrong booking then? Oh, wow. Well. But. <laughs> um, so without further ado, I want to welcome uh, Martin up the stage. So please, go ahead, Martin.
Okay, so hi everyone, and good evening. Uh, my name is Martin Haubaron Laugesen. I'm a philosopher, and I'm also a PhD student or a doctoral student at Sydlandskolen State, University of Southern Denmark, at Fynen or Fyn. Um, I've been working with speculative realism for quite a while now, and uh, as Megan just said in the uh, wonderful introduction, I came out with a book last year uh, called Speculative Realism in Introduction. For, uh, it has, um, it, we keep it in English here, uh, it, it has received quite a few uh, positive remarks in the, the daily press and so on, and you, you should check it out. It's uh, kind of cheap, actually, and it's beautiful at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon that. Um, anyway, uh, it's on Sample Sitter 2, and you can get it uh, uh, for under 200 kroner. Um, and it covers, uh, it covers uh, quite some ground, actually. We introduced six philosophers in the book, and I will talk about three of them tonight, because, as Megan uh, ambitiously put it, I will give a brief and thorough uh, introduction to speculative realism in approximately now only 27 minutes. Uh, wonderful. Um, but uh, I don't know. Okay, so I am, uh, I'm super happy to be here, blah, 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 but I will just jump right into the mix now. Uh, I first encountered speculative realism back in 2009 when I was doing my master's degree at University of Warwick in England. I spent one year over there. Um, and that's, that was sort of the environment. The, the University of Warwick, that was the environment, or the hotspot for the development of the early, um, the early germs of speculative realism, if you will. Um, it popped out from Warwick back in the late 90s, early uh, 2000s. Um, instigated by the massive interest in continental philosophy dominating the, uh, the, the philosophy department at the University of Warwick, counting such prominent names as Stephen Holgate, Miguel de Bastigi, Keith Anster Pearson, and, and others you know, some of you might have heard about. Um, so if you want to go to England to study and you want to know something about Hegel, Nietzsche, Deleuze, uh, Heidegger, you name it, then go to Warwick. I can really recommend it. It's a super place. Um, but anyway, so back in the 1990s, just to give like a, a small preamble um, to, to uh, as some kind of preliminary remark before I introduce the, the main names of the topic, um, you uh, found a philosopher called Nick Land, who uh, has been criticized heavily uh, during the past 20 years, uh, for the most part, uh, rightly, I believe, uh, due to his crypto-fascist uh, uh, alt-right sort of sympathies. Um, so his political interpretations or impl applications of his philosophical endeavors is somewhat uh, spurious, to say the least. However, he's an interesting figure in modern metaphysics because he sort of introduced H.P. Um, Lovecraft. That was a great fascination of his, and he introduced like cybernetics into continental philosophy, and a lot of other exciting topics um, that really invigorated the environment, especially in Britain, uh, being dominated by the philosophy of uh, Bertrand Russell and uh, Ludwig von Wittgenstein and uh, others at the Cambridge and Oxford <coughs> universities. Um, so, uh, being the outward in, uh, Warwick sort of um, served as this hotspot or philosophical environment that uh, that uh, speculative realism sort of developed in to begin with. Um, but it really took. Uh, okay, I'm gonna step, uh, take one step back, and I need Megan to do the swipe now, uh, because uh, let's see if it's to the left. Yes, thank you so much. This was earlier today, folks, uh, at the uh, at the University of Southern Denmark. I just wanted to share this uh, with you because we're gonna discuss uh, Diane and I and Rebecca and John as well. 
concerning the, 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 the symbiotic, uh, cybernetic, uh, cyborgian uh, manifestations of uh, human technology relationships. And uh, so here you can see me being super excited about uh, diving into like a Matrix-like experience with a cheap setup of virtual reality. You can get this uh, sponsored by, it's, this talk is not sponsored by Samsung, but I think they have, uh, they have sort of ex excelled, at least the, uh, the wonderful person, Matilda, on the left-hand side of the picture, she, she had students going to say, buy this stuff, like it's a super cheap virtual reality setup, and uh, you can use it in your home without any uh, uh, worries about uh, getting damaged from accidents and so on. So um, it's, uh, it's, it, it was an amazing experience. So what, I, what I'm witnessing right here, and maybe you can go to the next slide, no, uh, just uh, oh, actually no, just that, just stay there actually because they can use the the, the, the remote control here. This, uh, this talk is not sponsored by Logitech, but it is a super amazing device if you're going to get presentations. Uh, by the way, uh, so this is just another picture, like diving into the experience, and then at one point I was just super spaced out, and uh, it really was an interesting thing. And what I'm witnessing in the virtual reality goggles is like at a fertility clinic where a woman is uh, getting some of her eggs taken out of her ovary. And uh, that's why I'm in this, uh, well, it was kind of nice to be in this position, but when you sort of uh, get the, the get what is going on inside the, the goggles, it, uh, it, uh, it, uh, there is a twist to this situation. Um, but it was just a super immersive experience, and it's, it's, it's an interesting way to, ex to experiment with the body and with the, uh, the perspective of sense perception, at least. Maybe especially for the, 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 the male specimens of the human species in the room right now, you can get sort of like an amplification of what it means to go to a fertility clinic by using these uh, uh, virtual reality goggles in this manner. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to share this with you. Maybe we can come back to it later. Back to the slides. Thank you. So, uh, and maybe if you can press the uh, full screen uh, in the in the top uh, of the um, of the uh, of the screen, it should be possible to. Maybe that's the one. Maybe. Yeah, but it's like a Mac that doesn't have the FM. Uh, let's that's see. Can I? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. So anyway, this is some of my pals. Uh, Jonas in the middle, then Christopher on the right-hand side. And uh, we are the authors of the speculative release introduction book that comes uh, last year, that came out last year. Uh, <laughs> well, this is not going to turn into some kind of stole dance uh, talk uh, right now. So anyway... Um, this is the, okay, so speculative realism, getting back to business. Um, the movement uh, first started out, like officially, it got its name in 2007, where, where there was this uh, first uh, original conference at Goldsmiths College in London, England. And um, uh, the conference was simply called speculative realism. And you can see some of the headlines, uh, headlining names here. Uh, I also have pictures of them here. Uh, Ian Hamilton Grant, Graham Harmon. Uh, Quentin Meosu and then Ray Brashier and these these four guys uh, now I just call the, them the four horsemen because they are like records of the uh, the status quo of uh, Western metaphysics and I will try to explain what that means uh, in a in a moment. Um, but this is the original poster. Not specifically exciting to look at, but um, it has some marble in the middle at least. Um, but I just want to like read a quote to you. So this was in 2007, so it's like 11 years ago that this was instigated for the first time in an official manner in a, as an ac academic event. And uh, let's just take a look at this quote from the poster that sort of um, inaugurates what the framework or the coordinate system of the conceptual developments in speculative realism is all about. And I think this intellectual ambition is shared by uh, feminism, accelerationism, new materialism, uh, new feminist critique, uh, critiques coming out from 
Jane Bennett, Karen Barrett, Donna Haraway, and a lot of other guys uh, working in these areas. There is such a thing as zeitgeist, uh, and, and uh, you should all read Hegel, of course. Uh, but anyway, on the poster it says speculative realism is not a doctrine but the umbrella term for a variety of research programs committed to upholding the autonomy of reality, whether in the name of transcendental physicalism, object-oriented philosophy, or abstract materialism against the depredations of anthropocentrism. And um, now, uh, so this is the common ground of every uh, person, thinker, metaphysician, philosopher, practical uh, reasoning kind of person who delves into the speculative realist mix. They agree, they subscribe to this uh, overall ambition. Now, the way in which this can be applied or um, administered on an intellectual or metaphysical level uh, varies immensely. So, you see, it's super important to stress the fact that it's, it's as they say on the poster, an umbrella term. So, it's like a parplubitime so that can uh, sort of cover and, and, uh, and contain a lot of different and internally, um, uh, um, how do you say, like reciprocally uh, um, excluding positions. They're, 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 they are disagreeing quite a lot in this uh, loosely associated group of thinkers. So when you hear, if you hear, uh, and I hope you don't hear, but if you hear anybody saying that, they, oh, I'm a speculative realist, it's, uh, it's sort of nice and so on, then you should be super skeptical because uh, you cannot be such a thing as a speculative realist like that. It's not a positively defined position in the realm of philosophy. Uh, like, for instance, you could say, like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a transcendental idealist. And then uh, some of you guys will know that. Then you're good friends with Kant, for instance. Or you can be like, whatever. It's not a position like that. It's an umbrella term that signifies a movement within the zeitgeist of contemporary metaphysics or philosophy in general. And it sort of has practical implications and theoretical implications on a variety of different levels. And uh, I'll try to talk a bit about them uh, now. So uh, these are the guys, some of them. Um, uh, okay. Um, I just brought this because I think it's super important to stress the fact that the, when they talk about the depredations of anthropocentrism, what they have in mind um, is, amongst other things, the underlying uh, circumstances of uh, of uh, hard uh, reality that uh, that is uh, signified uh, or represented by these this host of graphs. Maybe some of you guys have seen some of them before. Uh, you talk about it in the literature on the Anthropocene, this suggested new name for this epoch that we're currently living in, geologically speaking, um, where it's not, no longer um, uh, meaningful or, or practically possible to distinguish between uh, human beings on the one hand, society and so on, and then uh, nature with a capital N on the other side, like what is uh, in the fields, in the woods, in the southern parts of Poland or whatever. Um, we can no longer do that, and that's signified by these graphs. So you can see, just to put it briefly... On the left-hand side, you have like socioeconomic trends, like what is going on in society with human cultural interferences in the earth systems, uh, like the amount of fertilizer consumption, paper production, uh, world population, and so on and so forth. And then you have like correlating to these uh, uh, drastic developments uh, from 1945 and onwards to today. Uh, this is called the great acceleration in the literature. You have like the uh, the implications for the earth system or the planetary on a planetary level. Uh, the, the, the emissions of methane, ocean acidification, terrestrial biosphere degradation, and a host of other uh, jolly things. And uh, so, uh, basically, how did this come about? Um, a lot of different ways to answer this question there is, uh, to put it in a Yoda-like grammar. Uh, uh, well, uh, certainly, the, spe- <laughs> the speculative realist... They, uh, this talk is not sponsored by Star Wars, by the way. Uh, no, but... Uh, fuck it. Speculative realism is an attempt to do away with or criticize imminently the uh, the metaphysical uh, um, presuppositions of 
these uh, practical developments. So, uh, so spectrum can be said to be a kind of uh, modernity criticism at the same time. So, those of you knowing uh, Bruno Latour, our good uh, French f uh, friend Bruno, uh, they, you will know what this is about, because uh, uh, Graham Harman actually wrote two books on uh, on uh, Bruno Latour, and he's editing an, an interesting series on Open Humanities Press called called the uh, New Metaphysics series, I think it's called. So Bruno Latour is also in the mix very much uh, as a background, sort of, for this uh, spectralism movement. Um, okay, so... Um, um, spectralism, so, umbrella term, it's like a name for a, a zeitgeist movement that impacts not just in the realms of philosophy, uh, we will hear more about it concerning, like, um, in the realm of art. You can also see it in the realm of literature. Uh, an interesting movie coming out soon, guys, is uh, Annihilation. Uh, the, guy, the people behind uh, the movie, Deus, uh, Deus Ex Machina, right, uh, is, uh, is dramatizing or uh, uh, interpreting this uh, book by Jeff Vandermeer, Annihilation. is the first book in a trilogy called the Southern Reach Trilogy. This would be like sort of speculative realist literature, I would, I would, I would say. And uh, I'm not going to in, into it right now, but if you're interested, we can talk about it later, perhaps. But this is a super interesting novel, trying out some of the speculative ideas in speculative realism. Um, so speculative realism can be administered on a host of different levels. That's just what I want to get across from the beginning. So don't think it's a static position, well-defined position, with a contour and a certain uh, premises and so on. It's very much... Uh, a, 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 um, uh, an umbrella term designating a movement in super development. Okay, so impacting popular culture, we can also see it. Um, I think I'll skip this. This is just like a, a still from Stranger Things, the first season, uh, the best season of the two, I think, so far. Um, and, the, and the professor at the high school is just saying, Naturvenskab er fantastisk, men ikke vambiari. That's sort of a quote that is, uh, that is quite significant to certain... Um, to certain uh, uh, experiments within the parameters of speculative realism, uh, perhaps uh, some of the uh, more defined positions, such as neo-nihilism and cosmic pessimism, I'll get back to that. They they are, they, they sort of agree with the professor at the uh, at the high school here that science sort of uh, uh, frames humanity and human beings in a somewhat uh, meager and uh, bleak perspective. Uh, let's say from the point of view of astrophysics or molecular biology or genetics or whatever, we sort of get a grasp of our uh, ultimate finitude as uh, as these uh, speck of uh, dust that we truly are. Or perhaps uh, we're all made of stardust, to put it in the Carl Sagan optimist sort of way. Uh, this is another quote, I think this may be more uh, easy to relate to, also in the vein of uh, cosmic pessimism, it's from True Detective, the first, uh, uh, first season of that show, and it's like we're having a, a, a jolly chat in the car here with the, with the Rust and, and uh, Marty. And uh, we have on the left-hand side here, we have like uh, Rust saying, look, I consider myself a realist, all right, but in philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. What's that mean? <laughs> and then he says, like, means I'm bad at parties. And then he says, let me tell you, you ain't great outside of parties either. <laughs> and then they, then they have a good day together, of course. Um, but, the, but the thing is that the, uh, the, 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 the bleak perspective on human existence that Russ Cole, like the character played by Matthew McConaughey, he was the dialogue, that, uh, the, 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 the lines that he speak in the television series um, is heavily inspired by two books in the literature, the, the, the library of speculative realism, one of them being Eugene Thagger's uh, immensely readable uh, In the Dust of This Planet that came out in 2010 or 11, I think, yeah. On uh, on zero books, uh, one of the one of the um, one of the publishers doing a, a great deal of work to, to sort of uh, disseminate the speculative realist ideas. So check out zero books. That's a nice uh, that's a nice publishing house. Um, 
and uh, and he sort of gives voice to this sort of yeah, as I said before, bleak perspective on human existence, stressing finitude to an extreme degree. Um, and uh, Nick Pizzolato, he said this in interviews. He's been reading Ray Brashey, he's been reading Eugene Thaga, and it sort of seeps out into into popular culture, uh, mediated through, for instance, uh, True Detective. All right, now let's get uh, let's get on with it. And uh, take a look at three of the of the of the the, the main figures of speculative realism. Um, I, I do not have time, of course, to go into uh, to go into all six of the people we introduce in the book, uh, speculative realism and introduction. So I just uh, I just uh, uh, decided to talk about three of these people, who to some extent uh, signifies or represents the, the main the main strands of, of possible philosophical experiments uh, in within the parameters of speculative realism, and that would be um, speculative materialism. Uh, represented by this guy, Quentin Mayasu from France. He's a student of Alain Badiou. Some of you might know this uh, this person. So he's uh, fond of mathematics, as some of you might have guessed. I will come back to that. I will talk a bit about Graham Harman, who is the um, he's the instigator of uh, object-oriented ontology, as it is also called. And uh, this goes back to the beginning of the 2000 series, actually. So it's not it's not as new as speculative realism itself, but uh, he's sort of one of the very popular philosophers these days. And then I will say a bit about um, Eugene Thacker uh, at the end, and then I will try to, to wrap it up at the, at the end. Um, okay, so I, maybe I should just say that we also write about Libby Bryant, an American philosopher looking a bit like Gordon Freeman from the Half, uh, Half-Life games uh, in this particular rendition. <laughs> I found that quite, uh, quite humorous. Then we also talk about, uh, write about Ian Bogus, a professor at Georgia Tech in America. He's a game designer and also a yeah, media studies kind of guy. And uh, Ray Brasier, of course, uh, uh, another British philosopher who uh, I know uh, Diane is quite fond of. Maybe you, maybe you will talk about some uh, some aspect of his thinking. Uh, I should say also that the, um, the imagery you see at the um, at the PowerPoint presentation behind me is uh, brought to you by Anton Bergjørnsen, a good friend of mine and a, a visual artist who uh, who, we, who we had uh, to to do unique portraits of the philosophers that we uh, write about in the book. And they, they are unique portraits, and uh, we sent them sent the portraits to some of the philosophers, and they were they were they they, they were quite uh, entertained and shocked at the same time, I think. But they, they sort of did not protest, so we went along. Um, but uh, but I think this also adds up to like a wonderful visual uh, supplement to the otherwise uh, um, uh, lofty philosophical mandarins. But uh, let's let's say something about Kuntsumeisu. So. The reason why I start out with Quentin Mesu is because he's the guy who sort of defined what the problem is. So I talked about the depredations of anthropocentrism to begin with, and uh, one way to uh, another way to talk about the same uh, depredations or the same problem that the notion, uh, the depredations of uh, anthropocentrism, uh, sort of uh, deals with, is to talk about correlationism. And uh, in this book, after finitude an essay on the necessity of contingency from 2006 originally came out in French. And then it was translated in 2008 by Ray Brachet, another of the, uh, the speculative realist philosophers. This is like the, the, the foundational writing. So if you're going to start out uh, wanna, wanting to read a bit about speculative realism, you should get hold of, of this book, I think. Uh, because this is really the book that defines what is the problem, basically. And a lot of other guys in the speculative realist movement, they subscribe to the same uh, critical diagnosis that uh, Mayasu, he, uh, he proposes in the book. And it's, uh, it's, it's really like a unique piece of writing also in like contemporary philosophical terms because it's like super scholastic in the style. Um, as I said before, Meersu is, is a student of Badiou, so he has a really, really intense um, uh, uh, sensibility for, 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 the stringent, for the rigidity of uh, cogent arguments. 
So, so don't don't uh, don't expect to be literarily uh, uh, blown away by this book. But if you uh, if you find aesthetic beauty in scholastic arguments, this will be something for you. <laughs> uh, so it's an acquired taste, I think you call it. Uh, but anyway, I just want to read a, a small quote to you guys, just to give you a brief taste of how he sort of defines uh, uh, what the problem can be said to be. And at the same time signaling what is the hope of, fu- of the future of philosophy, because that is also what we're going to talk a lot about tonight, I hope. Opening up of possible new futures, and not just the eternal iteration of a neoliberalist, uh, capitalist uh, uh, society status quo. This is, this is the practical implications of some of the speculative realists, and we will get back to this. Um, okay, so already on page number seven uh, in the book, Meyersu states the following. For it could be that contemporary philosophers have lost the great outdoors, the absolute outside of pre-critical thinkers, that outside um, which was not relative to us and which was given as indifferent to its own givenness to be what it is, existing in itself regardless of whether we are thinking of it or not. That outside which thought could explore with the, the, the legitimate feeling of being on foreign territory of being entirely elsewhere. So, uh, uh, latch on to the notion of the great outdoors that he sort of uh, initiates already at this point in the, in the text. <coughs> in the um, in the accelerationist manifesto by Alex Williams and uh, Nick Drisek, something like this. Uh, I haven't really figured out how to pronounce his last name. Uh, it's uh, spelled in an interesting manner. Um, uh, from 2013, you can find it in the anthology ex- hashtag Accelerate, um, the Accelerationist Reader. Um, we are going to delve into this in the discussion, I believe. Um, they also talk about uh, a radical outside with a capital O. So the thing to, 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 to take as the point of departure for the conceptual innovations is basically that there should be something outside of the human uh, correlationist circle. And this is what we've been living inside. Uh, now, as, as uh, Bacon said, this is going to be a brief but thorough introduction. Uh, skipping a bit of uh, Melmeininger here. But um, So, uh, uh, since, uh, since, since the publication of Emmanuel Kant's first critique in 1781... <laughs> All right, now get seated and comfortable in your chairs. <laughs> no, but since the, the, the publication of... Uh, Kant's first critique in 1781, uh, Critique of Pure Reason, we have sort of lived inside this uh, bubble of, uh, of the correlationist circle. Now, what does this mean? Uh, according to Kant, we, we want to pursue the so-called Copernican revolution in the history of metaphysics. That means, basically, that we leave behind the, 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 the image of man uh, or human beings positioned in the world of the olden times of Leibniz, Hume, Spinoza, and so on, where human beings sort of revolved around the existence of autonomous objects. So tables were there, uh, bunny rabbits were there, algae was there, uh, cosmic background radiation was there, and so on and so forth. And we sort of had to deal with this. This changes radically with the inauguration of German idealism in the beginning of the 1780s. Um, we have like 50 golden years of European thinking from 1781 with the publication of Kant's first critique and to the death of Hegel by cholera in 1831. We have 50 years where things were really in the mix and super interesting, but it sort of cemented this um, this, uh, this inner prison of our thinking and our research uh, practices at an academic level but also on an existential level for human beings. And it meant basically that objects or the external world, as we also call it in a technical term in philosophy, had to revolve around our thinking and our concepts and our cultural appropriations of who we were, what animals were, what nature is, and so on and so forth. And it was sort of 
everything outside and everything outdoors had to be reduced or correlated with our conceptual apparatus on a cognitive level. And uh, this subjugation of reality is really what is to be done away with, right, in, uh, in speculative realism. So you have, like, whether you talk about Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, uh, to some extent uh, Schopenhauer, to some extent Nietzsche, however, you, uh, depending on how you interpret these philosophers, but especially also phenomenology uh, in, the, in the end of the, the 19th century, uh, they all iterated or repeated this basic premise that the reality of the, uh, of the world or reality itself could not be thought and should not be thought without reference to the way in which it was being thought by human beings. So this ontological relativism, this is really the enemy. And this is, from the point of view of speculative realism, this is what has allowed human beings to push forward with this planetary super-intense destruction uh, and, and the negative ways of doing uh, towards um, other life forms, uh, objects in general, environmental awareness, and uh, so on and so forth. So we have been sort of trapped inside this uh, metaphysical prison that these guys want to break out of. Um, and that is, at least for that reason, that's super important. So if you wanna, if you're into ecology, if you're into, uh, if you're into nature, if you're into like uh, maybe you're a vegetarian, maybe you want to become a vegetarian or whatever, uh, but without the normative declarations of you should be a vegetarian or whatever, I think this is something for you. Uh, so, may I assume I will not go into the, uh, the, the 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 details of the arguments that that cannot really that is not fit for this event. But, uh, but he defines the coordinates. He defines correlationism as the problem, and he, and he puts forward the claim that we have to investigate the great outdoors on a metaphysical realm, on a metaphysical level, sorry. Well, super. Graham Harmon. In 2011, this book came out, The Quadruple Object, and uh, still to the present day, I talked to Graham about this several times, and he sort of affirmed my suspicion. This is still to this day the, the, the backbone of his philosophy. So if you want to get a crash course in object-oriented ontology, you should simply buy this book, The Quadruple Object from 2011. Eleven. Uh, he is coming out with a new book very soon, uh, 300 plus pages, that is simply called Object-Oriented Ontology, a, theory, a New Theory About Everything. Maybe that is also going to be good, I don't know yet. But uh, he said to me that this is still uh, what he subscribes to, basically. So just get a hold of this. <clears throat> Graham, he, um, he works with what is called a flat ontology, um, which basically means that uh, he acknowledges the existence of uh, all sorts of different objects and entities in the world existing on the same level ontologically as human beings. So this means, uh, from a point of view of the theory of science, or from a point of view of philosophy, that we should not be ex uh, especially interested in human beings. We should be as especially interested in all kinds of different entities and other stuff in the world. Um, and he really wants to do away with the Kantian paradigm that, uh, that, uh, that subscribes, or not, not subscribes, that, uh, that demands of us that we, uh, that we uh, specifically entertain the relation between the subject and the object. This has no place for, for, for Graham. Um, his uh, his uh, working out of his uh, positively defined philosophy on the other side of the critique of correlationism. Graham Harmon takes as a point of departure a radical interpretation of Husserl and Heidegger, two of the great phenomenologists. And um, But he sort of turns them into realists instead of uh, uh, the usual um, interpretation, exposition of Husserl and Heidegger uh, in a somewhat more idealist vein. Uh, that means that uh, due to intentionality and uh, Dasein, historic uh, human being, we sort of only have access to objects uh, in accordance with the cultural appropriation practices that we sort of uh, 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 that we sort of incorporate and inhabit in societies. Um, and it turns it into a realist account of things and tool being, as he talks a lot about. 
Um, uh, Heidegger is famous for his tool analysis and being in time, his great work from 1927. Um, and that's a sort of his point of departure. So at the basic level, just to give you a brief sense of his ontology, every object in the cosmos is sort of divided or split at its core, uh, having substance on the one side and then having relational appearance on the other side. And um, this means in practice that no object ever exhausts, and exhausts another object. Uh, so uh, whatever we talk about, if we talk about the remote control, a notebook, a conversation we're having with a good friend, uh, the, the hair that is lying on the floor after we have had a, a cheap haircut, for instance, whatever it is, whenever objects relate to one another, they do not ontologically exhaust one another. So this means to apply this on a practical level that no matter how we scientifically investigate things or practically intervene in the, in the, in the core of uh, circumstances, we're never, we're never done with things. There is always more to the story. So it sort of uh, uh, demands of us that we, um, that we uh, uh, begin to subscribe to a sort of a principle of humility on an, uh, on an epistemological level. So you can see with Harman, there is not so uh, long a distance between the theoretical uh, um, uh, reflections and then the practical implications even though it's not something he goes that much into. But uh, substantial withdrawal on the one side, and then you have like relational appearance on the other side. That is sort of the core of his ontology. Um, and then he develops this into like cosmic maps of the universe, as he calls them in the book. Interesting reading. Okay. Timothy Morton, another, uh, another great philosopher. So I just want to mention, I'm not going to talk about him, but um, this book came out last year in the awesome called Humankind, Solidarity with Non-Human People, and it's by the British author and professor of literature studies, uh, Timothy Morton. Um, Morton is like a, a student in, in, in a certain sense of Graham Harmon. He takes object-oriented ontology on a, on a whole new level. And I think, again, I'm not going into it right now, but Morton is interesting because he tries to make practical use of speculative realism. He talks about something he calls object-oriented communism in this particular book and uh, tries to um, uh, justify the notion of planetary solidarity instead of just talking about international solidarity as we're used to on, in left-wing rhetoric. Um, so check this book out if you're interested in the practical, some of the practical implications of speculative realism. Okay, last but not least, um, Eugene Thanger. I, I was privileged enough to actually meet up with Eugene back in 2016, the springtime, to do an interview with him. And it is published on uh, Baugrund, uh, this, uh, the online magazine of uh, Idee History, History of Ideas. Uh, and you can find it uh, for free at uh, Baugrund's uh, website. And uh, I had a chat with him about um, speculative realism and especially his specific publications in the, in the speculative realist vein. Uh, but also about, uh, as I talked about before, like True Detective and how this sort of taps into popular culture in a broader sense. Um, I would say a few things about this book, In the Dust of This Planet. Uh, some of you uh, on the front row seats uh, can see maybe that it says Horror of Philosophy, Volume 1. So here we have a trilogy. Um, and uh, the first book is perhaps the best to go to because that's the most like elaborate and most written out. So it's more clear what he's actually getting at in a certain sense in this book. Uh, the other two volumes are, amongst other things, like aphorisms and more like poetic expressions. So if you're more into like a literary experience, maybe you should check those out. I can, for your uh, information, just read the titles of the second and the third volume aloud to you because it's uh, sort of give a sense of where he comes from, I think. Um, the second volume in his horror philosophy trilogy is called Starry Speculative Corpse. And the third volume is called Tentacles Longer Than Night. Uh, so again, a jolly fellow, and um, uh, and uh, actually he has uh, tattooed uh, he has tattoos on his body, 
uh, and I saw two of them. Uh, he was like dressed in like long, uh, oversized black robes. When I met him at the Fifth Avenue in New York, uh, he's uh, he's a professor at the New School in New York City. And uh, it was interesting because, like, down down out of the, one of the sleeves of his uh, s- uh, super big like T-shirt, it came like uh, uh, tentacles from like a story of H.P. Lovecraft, for instance. <laughs> and then on the other and then on the other bicep, down on his left hand, uh, his left arm, it came like uh, like chains. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so he was, uh, he was like <laughs> he was like a super dramatic kind of person, but but also super mellow and just uh, gave me a cup of tea and we had a chat for a couple of hours. Um, so uh, don't be don't be uh, afraid of this guy. Um, but anyway, just says something about the uh, the inspiration of Lovecraft, really going into also the work of uh, of um, of uh, Thacker. Uh, maybe I should say also that's also an important point that despite the various differences and uh, uh, intense disagreements between the different speculative realists, uh, they are all uh, indebted to the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. Some of you guys may know him, uh, some of you guys may not know him, and for those of you who do not know him as of yet, I would really, really recommend trying to read him, because it's a nice literary way into speculative realism, like the, 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 the metaphorical temperament uh, inspiring the works and the writings of the speculative realist. You can get a sense of this when reading uh, Lovecraft. Uh, check out like the Mount, At the Mountains of Madness, so, uh, Call of Cthulhu, uh, stuff like this. The opening passage of The Call of Cthulhu, that's like epic shit. Um, and it really like is uh, is a paraphrase of a lot of different ethical implications of what they're getting at. So um, so anyway, in the dust of this planet, um, I'll do it briefly and thoroughly. Um, so it's called horror philosophy. Uh, um, Eugene Thacker introduces us to this uh, tripartite distinction, or like an analytical matrix of sorts, in the beginning of the book, where he distinguishes between the world for us the world in itself, and then the world without us. And uh, if you are into like environmental journalism, you will know that there is a book called The World Without Us from 2007 or something by Alan Weisman, who did this amazing thought experiment in this book that is actually called The World Without Us. And it's, as it says on the front cover, it's a New York Times bestseller. Uh, but it's, it's very interesting to read this one. And uh, when I mentioned the southern part of Poland in the beginning of my talk, it was not, an, it was not a coincidence. Because right now uh, a major like environmental battle is being fought in the deep, uh, the depths, uh, shadowy, uh, murky realms of uh, the uh, primal forest of uh, Bielowice, I think it's called. Uh, you can ask uh, Franek for pronunciation later. One more time. There you go. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, and he talks about the forest uh, at length, some length in this book, and it's really interesting interesting to read. The Polish government right now being just uh, pure dicks, just giving it up for like timber uh, industry, this uh, old primal forest that has like a, a unique biodiversity, millions of years old. So uh, strange things is going on not so far away from our borders. Uh, strange things are happening within our borders as well, I should say, <laughs> on a host of different levels. But anyway, um, the third part of the distinction that Eugene Thagger introduces is taken from the, this book, that was just the point I wanted to make, the world for us, the world in itself, and then the world without us. And the really interesting part of is, of course, the world without us, because we already know from the history of philosophy, like we have been, we have been told this time and time again, that you can distinguish between how the world appears to you, as in a perception or in a piece of knowledge, whatever, and then how it is in itself, like on a mathematically um, formalizable uh, level. So if we apply like uh, 
uh, astrophysics to understand like the velocity of the ballistics of incoming asteroids, we can sort of get a pretty precise picture of how the, the world in itself is uh, configured, at least in relation to that specific phenomenon, right? Uh, and if we are going to like uh, deal with an incoming asteroid uh, threatening uh, certain parts of uh, of, uh, of uh, the populated uh, uh, geography of planet Earth, we are not going to ask the, hermen- the hermeneutic interpreters of the humanities to sort of give us a, an account of uh, the meaning of asteroids in a symbolic context. We're sort of going to call up uh, Bruce Willis, of course, and then he can he can nuke the the. <laughs> no. But we're going to listen to the natural science. That's just the point, right? <coughs> nice. The world without us, uh, in contrast to the first two um, aspects of the tripartite distinctions that Eugene Thacker introduces, has to do with the way in which we are not really capable of actually getting to know at all. And this actually has some resemblance to what I talked about before when I talked about object-oriented ontology as the principle of non-exhaustion. That every time human beings deals with objects or other kind of objects deals with objects, uh, no objects exhaust the being and the potentialities of other objects. That's sort of the main point. And um, this sort of this 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 sort of principal um, observation, if you will, gives leverage uh, for Thaga in order to introduce the world without us. Uh, but he takes it um, in his own direction, being inspired by black no, uh, Norwegian black metal. Uh, he talks about Bursum and mayhem in the book as well. He talks about K.G. Heino, uh, who played in Copenhagen not so long ago with Bisse. A lot of people left during the concert. Uh, I stayed. Um, but uh, but uh, but he sort of had a lot of different considerations concerning how it is possible to aesthetically um, uh, stage the world without us, and uh, what he raises as uh, at the at the end of the book, which is actually um, part of the most interesting part of the book, in the chapter called the subharmonic murmur of black tentacular voids. It's the name of a poem that he claims is anonymously authored that has been like uh, going viral on the internet pages and so on. But I have uh, checked the footnotes out, and that sort of makes sense to claim that it's, it's, he has written this poem. He just sort of don't want to admit it, I don't know why. Um, but he claims, uh, he, he, he's, he, he, he raises the following question at the beginning of the last chapter, and that sort of wraps up what he wants to deal with. Uh, what follows is an extended commentary on a basic question. Can there exist today a mysticism of the unhuman, one that has as its focus the climatological meteorological and geological world in itself, and, moreover, one that does not resort to either religion or science. So, instead of, uh, instead of um, um, drawing neo-nihilist implications of this natural scientific insights into the way the world is, he sort of raises the question, can we mythologically and aesthetically dramatize the condition of um, existence and reality that sort of follows from the, uh, the fact that the contingency is all around us, uh, Mayasu talks about hyperchaos, uh, like, you know, contingency is really what, what reality is. Uh, and then he sort of goes through st- these different, like, horror genre um, uh, pieces of culture, like horror movies, Lovecraft, Black Metal, and so on and so forth. He talks about demonology. He's very fond of, like, the witch hammer and other, like, medieval texts that he sort of um, mines for interesting non-philosophical concepts in the book uh, in order to give, like, another account of how we can understand ourselves in the 21st century. Um, I think I will end just giving you one example of how this can work out. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, uh, an opera uh, taking place at the, the Kongli Theater, the Royal Theater in Copenhagen, called Neo Arctic, uh, and it was uh, only be, it was only shown for three or four days, and it, I don't even think it was like sold out. It was like a shame because it was like a, 
super fine uh, work of art, and uh, the libretto was uh, written by Sean, uh, Sean or Sean or whatever, like an Icelandic or uh, writer, I think. Um, and it starts like uh, 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 songs on plastic, songs of mud, songs of oil, and songs of different natural phenomena. Uh, and human beings, like the actors in, this, in, the, in the scenery, sort of uh, were cast in like uh, beautiful projections of uh, uh, biodiversity, aesthetics, and uh, different like uh, materialities of the planet. Uh, so, so, so you get a sense of, I hope, that uh, what is really going on, spectacular realism, if, if you take it to like a practical, philosophical, or existentialist, or ethical uh, arena, is that human beings uh, needs, need to be rethought and reconceptualized in the light of a planetary perspective, and not the other way around. Uh, and only if we do that, we can sort of escape the depredations of anthropocentrism. That, that is sort of the wager in spectacular realism. Um, much more to say about it, but I think I will end there. Thank you so much for your attention, and uh, looking forward to the discussion. And now we're going to have a listen to the second half of the talk with Diane Bauer from Laboria Cubonics. Everyone, uh, give a big hand to Diane. Thank you all for the invitation, and thank you all for coming on such a cold night. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. I cannot promise to be as entertaining as the last presentation. I have a paper that I'm going to read, um, and and some pictures that will hopefully get us through it. Um, so I want to cover just sort of an overview of, of xenofeminism, and I will talk about what alienation is meant by xenofeminism and what freedom is. Um, I was hoping to get into nature, but it just sort of going started going on and on and on, and actually, to be honest, I haven't totally worked that out yet, so maybe we can do that in the discussion. Um, so I'll just start. Uh, so Xenofeminism, a pol politics for alienation, is a manifesto articulated, uh, articulating a feminism adequate to the conditions of the contemporary uh, complexity and abstraction of con constitutive of the early 21st century. As a political project, xenofeminism recognizes the necessity of working on a scale beyond the local and the need for an agile politics can, be, uh, can accommodate, that can accommodate adapt, adaptation and revision. In addition, XF makes explicit the need for decoupling the building of future platforms from centuries of habituated injustice and the miserable imbalances of power that exist around race, gender, and economic background. This must happen across disciplines, geographies, and cultures. It is a project with the aim of maintain, maintaining corrosive effect across disciplines. XF recognizes the possibilities of reorienting the complex systems in which we live towards broader justice can be in part made possible by technology, alienation, and the capacity for abstraction, not despite these things. So as a sort of introduction, I'm going to show a short video some of you may have seen. It was on the website for this event, but... Um, it's only five minutes, so it will only take five minutes of your life to watch it again. Uh, dear listeners, unfortunately there is a visual component to this next part, so um, I'm just going to allow Megan explain that to you. Yeah, so um, part of Diane's practice is as a filmmaker, um, and she made a film to try and explain some of the ideas of xenofeminism um, which you can find on our website on the embedded into the article uh, what is xenofeminism um, so I'll check that out uh, you can find that through the link in the description uh, 
Okay, so as a philosophical project, XF takes concepts in part from a male European canon, an avowal of reason, for example, and retools them for its own purposes. It claims alienation as a vector of emancipation. The manifesto states the following. XF ceases alienation as an impetus to generate new worlds. We are all alienated, but have we ever been otherwise? It is through and not despite our alienated condition that we can free ourselves from the muck of immediacy. Freedom is not given, and is certainly not given by anything natural. The construction of freedom involves not less, but more alienation. Alienation is the labor of freedom's construction. Nothing should be accepted as fixed, permanent, or given, neither material conditions nor social forms. So what is meant by alienation here, and what is meant by freedom? I hope I can clarify both of these things tonight. So I'll begin with alienation. It's a core idea for XF. It's in the title, A Politics for Alienation. And even in the title, it's a project that aims to construct something. It's in, in that it's a politics for, rather than a, rather than a politics of. It's propositional of how to use something, how to utilize a capacity rather than proposing a way out, a way of getting out of a condition. But what is meant by alienation here? There are risks in using this term, attempting to retool a word that has so much weight in both uh, the history of political thought as well as common, common parlance, risks misunderstanding. So I hope I can clarify what is meant here. Rather than estrangement being an inhibitor to what a human can do, it is the condition by which humans have been able to do anything involving scale or abstraction. And these are the condi conditions in which politics now operates. It is conditions of abstraction that have deep effects on much of the species regardless of individual access to the mechanisms of our global condition. So I'm actually going to mention Carl Sagan. And we can talk about whether stardust and regular dust is the same thing or not. I kind of think it is. It's just one's, so one's nicer <laughs> to talk about. Uh, so whether it's star, stust, star stuff or common dust. Uh, I'm going to, yeah. So alienation, as spoke about in XF, is closer to the thing that Carl Sagan said about humans being a way for the universe to know itself, at least in our small corner of the cosmos. It doesn't limit knowing to human, however. But alienation for XF is alienation between the capacity to know and from not knowing. <coughs> alienation for XF is the human capacity to form and be formed by concepts. It operates at a global scale. It is constitutive of what we are as a species. It is what, it, it is what we can do as a species, rather than being a feeling of disconnect or loss, as felt by an individual. It is the split between sapience and sentience. Robert Brandom makes a distinction between sapience and sentience by talking about parrots. If you have a parrot that isn't trained to distinguish the color red from other colors and make a noise indicating as much, for example by being taught to say the word red, it does not qualify as sapience, because just because it can make discriminating noises, it does not have the capacity to understand the concept of red. He says that the sapient being responsibly classifies the stimuli as falling under concepts as being of some conceptually articulated kind rather than mere differential responsiveness. So if you think about this purely at the level of the individual, it could get into dangerous territory with regard to humans who don't have the capacity to form concepts, humans with cognitive impairment, for example. But precisely because alienation spoken about in XF is a functioning across the species, so the cognitive ability of any one human is not the thing in question. Alienation for XF is about what our capacities are, what we can do, and indeed what we are as a species, not as individuals or even as cultures. 
And thinking about this at the scale beyond the individual is an essential component of 2XF and the work being developed from it. Helen Hester, who's also part of Laborio Cubonics, who I was hoping was going to be able to come tonight but couldn't, um, her idea of sapience plus care, for example, starts to map out why this alienation, this capacity for abstraction, is so important in practical terms. She says that it is our capacity for abstraction and thinking beyond the local that bestows us with a unique responsibility for care. This includes those of our own species, but her point is broader than that. We have the capacity and indeed the responsibility to conduct what ought to be, which is itself a concept, whether it affects us personally or not. This applies to questions of care for other creatures, sapient or not, but importantly, uh, that we uniquely have the capacity to care for things beyond human scale, i.e. the planet. She says this. I'm on the wrong slide. Sorry, guys. Let's go back to that. Um, A species capable of achieving an abstract understanding of ecologies with an unsurpassed insight into complex and intersecting global systems, including environmental, economic, infrastructural, and sociopolitical networks. Humans have seemingly matchless capacity to attend to the environment beyond our local situations. The core for understanding what alienation is for XF and what it can do. The sapient sentience divide is valid and useful for understanding what productive alienation might be, My concern here is that I think too much emphasis on the human would be a mistake. For Brownman, the question of sapience is about the game of giving and asking for reasons, and it's rooted in language. It is a language game, and it's understood this language game is limited to humans. I think to limit sapience to humans will be an idea we will look back from the future with a view of how could we think such silliness, how could we have indeed been so anthropocentric. Rather, XF is calling for a broadening of what intelligence might be. The emphasis on capacity to deal with concepts is central, but I would be reluctant to limit it to the human, even though the human at present is the species that we can say with some certainty has this capacity, indeed because of language and capacity for discourse. But I would not want to make definitive claims about the capacities of any known unknowns, certain non-human animals. Octopi present a pretty interesting example with regard to this, or unknown unknowns, speculatively speaking, AI or non-terrestrial intelligence. The principal point, rather, is that, uh, is that humans demonstrate a capacity for a particular level of complex thinking and abstraction that is not evidenced by other animals. The capacity to know that we know, to be aware of our knowing, is both a form of alienation and a form of emancipation. This is a shift that enables emancipation in the first place, both as a concept and as a condition. This is the alienation that XF avows. It is a leap from making the bulk of our judgments based on what we could feel to making them based on what we could think. This is not to devalue stimulus or knowledge acquired through sensation, but the capacity to turn that stimulus into something more than just sensation is the result of our sapience. It is our capacity to do this is as old as we are as humans. As soon as we could reason beyond our biological needs, uh, needs and survival, we were already alienated. But there's also an issue of emancipation spoken about in the manifesto. Freedom. What is meant by freedom in XF? The manifesto says this. Xenofeminism is about more than freedom from patriarchal networks. We want to cultivate the exercise of positive freedom. Freedom to rather than simply freedom from. In the quote here, uh, in the quote there's both freedom from, negative freedom, and freedom to, positive freedom, are mentioned. 
very broadly speaking, negative freedom is freedom from restriction, uh, whereas positive freedom is the freedom to pursue pursue one's own collect one's own or collective interests, the freedom to construct a future. As Nick Cernicek, or Cernick if you're Canadian, Cernicek if you're not, and Alex Williams in their recent book uh, Inventing the Future explain um, negative freedom as uh, let's see, yeah. The freedom of individuals to, uh, from arbitrary interference by other individuals, collectives, and institutions, paradigmatically the state. Negative freedom's insistence on the absence of interference has made it an ideal tool to wield against purportedly totalitarian opponents, yet it is a woefully emaciated concept of freedom. End quote. But rather than positive freedom, as a counterpoint, they offer this idea of synthetic freedom. They go on to say this. Whereas negative freedom is concerned with Whereas negative freedom is concerned with assuring the formal right to avoid interference, synthetic freedom recognizes a formal right without capacity is worthless. Maximizing synthetic freedom involves at least three different elements. The provision of basic necessities of life, the expansion of social resources, and the development of technological capacities. Taken together, these form a synthetic freedom that is constructed rather than natural a collective historical achievement rather than the result of simply leaving people be. Emancipation is thus not about detaching detaching from the world and liberating a free soul, but instead a matter of constructing and cultivating the right attachments. Freedom is a synthetic enterprise, not a natural gift. This is the freedom avowed by XF. It is a freedom of both uh, both from oppressions but also from uh, the freedom to do things. The line in the manifesto quoted before specifically referring to freedom about, uh, from patriarchal structures, but it's also calling for a retooling of existing structures and technologies. Being constructive, not just reactive, which is akin to what uh, is described by Cernicek and Williams as synthetic freedom. Essential for freedom are basic human needs. One needs freedom from hunger, from threats of violence, from basic conditions that allow our capacity for abstraction to be constructive. It is very difficult to utilize the kind of alienation of XF uh, vows if basic ne- negative freedoms, freedoms from, are not in place. But this too, these negative freedoms themselves are made, not given. These are conditions. These conditions need to be constructed. They are not a natural state. This is where the idea of alienation is, a pri- is an a priori condition of freedom, because freedom, uh, because freedom, negative or positive, is synthetic. It is constructed. There is no natural state of freedom. There needs to be a capacity for abstraction beyond immediate circumstances to construct uh, the conditions for freedom. But important questions here are whose freedom and what what is freedom's relationship to power? On one level, it's hard to argue against freedom. Who wouldn't advocate freedom? But not all freedoms are created equal. It's worth emphasizing that just because we have the capacity to construct conditions for freedom... Uh, for those not in power, it does not mean that it's the thing that will happen when left to our own devices on an individual or a collective basis. Indeed, because it's not natural, because our freedoms are synthetic. Humans have the capacity for reason but don't often demonstrate it unless it's in the interest of themselves, their tribe, their group, or if they're obliged to do so by laws, norms, or combinations thereof. What constitutes their group is very important in trying to work out questions of freedom. And, and end its relationship to power. 
The question should then be how can a system enable a fair distribution of power as a means to broader distribution of freedom? Does it make a difference if we're talking freedom of a collective or freedom of an individual? I'm going to check how I'm doing with time because I've got a section here that I can just leave out <laughs> or leave in depending on how the time is. Does anyone? I, I'm, I'm <laughs> but it's going to take time. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> you've, got, you've got like 20 minutes? Okay, I'll leave it in. Let's start there. Okay. Um, all right. So I'm going to do my housing thing now. Um, yeah, I have, I have a bit of a concrete fetish, but maybe that, we'll leave that to the side for a minute. Um, so I, I want to look at the question of freedom through the lens of housing because it's one of those basic human needs. Uh, if one does not have a stable housing situation, freedom from homelessness, the threat of the elements, instability, violence, etc., it becomes much harder to develop the possibility of positive freedom or indeed synthetic freedom. Using housing as an example, I'd like to think out the correlation between freedom and power. As an example, it raises questions regarding both individual and collective freedom as well as uh, positive and negative freedom. It makes explicit the relationship between freedom and power. So my example is the UK because that's what I'm most familiar with, but I imagine the situation is similar in much of Europe. I think it highlights how freedom is often spoken about in neoliberalism. So in the UK, building code is set by the state and interpreted by the industry. In the UK, there are 16 separate headings, each covering aspects such as workmanship, adequate material structure, etc. There's a great deal of space for interpretation and in how this work is carried out. Because of the myriad, myriad of decisions that go into the construction of a building, raw materials, workmanship, etc., this means there are also a myriad of ways for things to be fudged, whilst responsibility ends up getting widely dispersed. Now, if we are talking about this in the context of trying to understand freedom, it seems to me the situation allows for a good deal of individual freedom for those uh, responsible for making those decisions freedom to make choices based on profit margins, efficiency, budget reduction, etc., etc., rather than uh, adequacy or durability of materials, for example. In addition to the individual freedoms and distributed responsibility enabled by the structure of a building, of building regulation, an important collective freedom within industry is more deregulation. Deregulation provides negative freedom for a particular collective, and to make clear, this is not negative in the sense of deregulation is bad news for huge parts of the UK population, which it is, but negative in the sense that it provides a particular group with a freedom from, a freedom from what is often described as costly and restrictive regulation. So this is the logic of neoliberalism, basically. This brings us back to the question of what constitutes a group, a tribe, etc., so within a, this particular group, I would include the building industry, but I would also include those who benefit from the ever-elevating property prices within the British housing market. A couple of examples of this negative collective freedom, this freedom from, includes two bits of legislation published under the, sorry, this gets very technical in British, uh, the 2010 to 2015 Conservative and Liberal Democrat Coalition government. They include a very snappily named Red Tape Challenge, which is aimed at cutting regulation in the building industry specifically, and a one-in-two-out rule, which is incidentally very similar to an executive order made by Trump very early in his presidency. So the UK version of the one-in-two-out uh, is this. So businesses say that one of their biggest problems in the number of new regulations uh, they have to comply with, it costs them time and money. 
to reduce the number of new regulations for businesses, government offer a one-in-two-out rule. This prevents governments, policymakers from creating new regulations that increase the cost for their business and voluntary organizations. When policymakers do need to introduce new regulation and where there is cost to complying with that regulation, they have to remove or modify existing regulation with double the cost of business. So whose, priority, uh, whose freedom gets priority here? What are the freedoms of those who live and work in the buildings that are being built or refurbished now? Or even more, uh, where, does it, where does it leave those in buildings where the, uh, built, that were built before more stringent regulation was introduced? Regulation that councils, building and associations, private landlords are not obliged to meet retroactively. The relationship between freedom and power seems very clearly laid out here. Uh, these questions are begged to be asked in this context. Whose, freedom, whose freedoms does legislation protect? It is clear who has the freedom and who does not. It is clearly and predictably coincides with those who have power. So this is Nick and Alex again. They say freedom and power become intertwined. The more capacity we have to act, the freer we are. So this leaves the question of how to move forward, how to begin to redistribute power with a view to broadening freedom. In any political project, there needs to be both knowing that and knowing how. So if the that is synthetic freedom, if we know that synthetic freedom is a synthesis of positive and negative freedom, and it's, it is a commitment worth making, then the how also, but could the how also be thought of as synthetic? A synthesizing of our capacity for abstraction with our capacity for disposition. As I argue, the alienation in XF is our capacity as, sap uh, as sapient beings to form and be formed by concepts, <coughs> to construct structural aspects of our world with deliberation and with reason. But we also have the capacity for getting a sense of a situation through knowledge that is non-linguistic, precognitive. We obtain knowledge derived from quickly sensed stimulus before there is time to transform that stimulus into a concept. It is still knowledge that can be useful when, the, when one wants to shift a situation. So in addition uh, to the capacity for reason, we have capacities to get a feel for a situation. We can take the temperature of a room, we can, argue, we can gauge an atmosphere. To be clear, when I say precognitive, I do not mean precognitive in some supernatural way or some minority report way. What I mean is deriving knowledge from a situation from stimulus that has not had time to become conscious cognition. This is a kind of knowing that happens faster than knowing available to us through reason, because reasoning takes time. This is a kind of knowledge that is also important. It has been important for survival as a species, and it seems foolish to think that we would leave it behind when we, the capacity for reason made us us. When sapience emerged, these capacities worked together. So my question is, can the how of political <coughs> operation of constructing a counter-hegemonic politics be synthesized with our capacity for abstraction in the construction of what ought to be. If this, if, uh, this would be where policy-building code legislation were the primary actors. And combine this with our capacity for feeling our way through things, disposition, and the more amorphous task of shifting norms. So it's not to say that reason isn't useful or important. Perhaps it's more useful if, we think about, if we're thinking about politics, if it's used in combination with this position. This is an aside. Are these two mics starting to create weird noises? Or are we okay with the sound? Yes, it is. No, it's fine. <laughs> Taking the temperature of a room. Yeah, got it. All right. Well, 
I'll try that. How's that? You still hear me? No. That one is so How's that? Cool. Okay. Um, where am I? Uh, so it's not to say that reason isn't useful or important, but it's perhaps is more useful if we're thinking about politics in combination with this position. Uh, one only needs to look at uh, contemporary politics to see that contemporary politics to see that it does not function by reason alone or arguably at all. I want to look at Keller Easterling to elaborate this idea of getting a feel for a situation and shifting it. She speaks about disposition using the metaphor of a game of pool. So the balls on the table are a topology. This is Easterling. A network of sequenced relationships. There is no single target at which to aim, but rather a stretchy network of hard and absorbent absorptive surfaces. The player who sees only one fixed sequence will sink fewer balls, reduce the potential of the table, and lose. Rarely are the cue ball and its target geometrically aligned with the whole, so the majority of the majority of shots involve the expertise of indirect contact and ricochet. The game is played like a chain reaction with multiple branching possibilities that change after sh- that change after every shot, and yet with every shot. The most uh, constructive thing that can be done is to increase the chances for more shots, generate more branches in the network of possibilities, more information. There is no need to call each shot. It is better to keep the spectators guessing. There is also a matter of touch, which can't be easily described, but only understood by doing it. Pool is only a reminder of all the things that can change when a body with all its sentience and force fields brushes against the air. It can be a matter of deliberate speed and impact coming from hands through the cue stick and out to the ball, but sometimes it's a matter of English. The spin placed on the cue ball that's later transformed to another. English is an advanced technique that, can be, that can't be predicted, but it can be exploited. It's less about the intention of the shooter and more about something between moving solids outside of the human skin. The player who can continue to set up potentials, and options can, play, can rule the table longer. So the question I have at the end of all this, uh, this end quote from Easterling, the question I have here is the question of scale. So Easterling is suggesting a kind of dispositional knowledge. She speaks about this also in her book, Extra Statecraft, uh, and she cites Gilbert Ryle, for whom knowing how is explained through the example of how to tell a joke. This is Easterling again. She says, what is... Funny is contingent on a set of choices, uh, contingent on the audience's reaction. The clown's performance relies on knowing how. So, end quote, my personal sense is that Ryle does not put sufficient value in an ever-shifting knowing that. Knowing that, importantly, is not some rigid, fixed thing, but it also changes in time. But the analogy of both the clown and pool seem nonetheless useful for thinking about dispositional knowledge and its importance. It is, of course, only half the story. Uh, It is one of the elements that needs to be synthesized because I'm not sure this kind of dispositional knowledge can operate sufficiently on a larger scale. Does that touch that can't be easily described, that she mentions, still function at a scale beyond the experiential, at a scale where there is no touch? We are a global species. Our lives are intimately affected by global conditions, whether or not one, uh, whether one has or does not have access to global finance markets, the internet, or a mobile phone. To demonstrate the scale of the problem, I would like to carry on with the metaphor of pool. 
there is, of course, physics involved in pull. There's the reality of the force uh, with which the ball is hit, the direction, the spin, etc. All of that has the potential to be calculated. The kind of knowledge that calculation would provide theoretically could enable the understanding of what needs to happen to control the table to win the game. However, making these calculations would not be the most practical way of, in fact, winning the game. Much more effective, as Easterling describes, is getting a feel for the table and knowing, knowing about the space between things. Calculations are extremely useful, however, if you want to scale up. So if we think about scaling up, force, spin, trajectory, these are all present in celestial bodies. Let's scale up the metaphor by looking at something like getting Cassini into precise orbit around Jupiter. This work cannot be done by disposition. It is through abstraction, mathematics, that this is possible. It is through calculus that this can happen. This is the capacity for abstraction that has enabled us as a species to function at a planetary scale. This is the alienation where we started. This abstraction is, how, is now present in our economics and our politics, though perhaps it's closer to the knowing that than the knowing how. But both are now essential. We need a command of both abstract and, dis- and dispositional knowledges if we are to have a, a political efficacy. What I'm wondering is what would a synthesis of this dispositional knowledge and abstraction look like if the aim is to shift the, the trajectory of humans towards greater distribution of power and therefore freedom? The urgency of this becomes all the more evident when we're thinking about something like climate change and sea level rise. It is a planetary-scale crisis that needs to be dealt with by locally embodied species who also has the capacity for abstraction. So we are already functioning at multiple scales at once. But when contending with the complexity that such a looming catastrophe demands, the capacity of climate change, that is, Uh, the capacity to oscillate scales seems all the more essential. We will need to shift our localist temporal tendencies, our short-termism, our election cycles, our lifetimes. We need to get cozy with deep time. Doing this will take disposition and abstraction. If we are trying to construct a future, we will need to master the dexterity to 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 operate at multiple scales at any given time, both as individuals and as a species. We need to build a flexible scaffolding with our capacity for abstraction, keep it open to regular revision while maintaining our commitments to reason. We need to know how to climb that scaffolding whilst constructing it as we go. That's all. Thanks. Okay, thank you so much for listening. Um, Stay tuned for more podcast content. I don't know what to say. No, we're leaving that in. (laughs) Bye, guys.